Hi Brickies, I'm Dominic, the last one standing with a kink for cannibalism. And I'm Kate, the resident phobia expert who also hears voices. And you're listening to Shit and Bricks. A podcast where we talk shit about stuff that scares us. Ripping a few laughs and survival tips along the way. As always, please subscribe, rate and review us. And don't forget to follow us on the socials at Shit and Bricks Podcast. Like the morning after a night on the curries and cans, here it comes. So drop your dax, pop a squat and let's get into it. <laughs> Oops, I did it did again. Yeah. Uh, I play with your heart. Uh, uh, got, got lost in, in the game. game. Oh, baby, baby. Um, I don't know oh, where that God. came from. <laughs> But we're Ooh, here. You're frozen on such a beautiful, beautiful image. Am I am I eating out a clam? You were frozen eating out a clam. Now you have to okay. let me know if you can hear me okay, because I haven't got my usual setup. So I'm making do with Oh. Two Harry Potter books. That's de- where that's definitely it's it's working. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Just mouth over that mic as much as you can, Kate. Oh, oh baby. That's great. Oh, baby. All right. <laughs> I'll even just hold it up. I can do th- I can do multiple things. <laughs> Drink, I talk. can do two things at once. <laughs> Fuck yeah. Let's go. Hi, Kate. Hey, Dom. Welcome to Shit and Bricks Podcast. <laughs> Welcome to the Shit and the Bricky, baby cakes. Good to see you. Oh, yeah. Kate and I are very excited because we're recording this episode on the night of the semifinals for the Matildas. Let's go, Tillies. Up the tills. And, of course. We're all banking on a public holiday, so we've got to win the whole kit and caboodle. (laughs) That's right. Give me a pubic holiday because I need one. And in Australia, we don't have too many already, so. Yeah, exactly. Plus sporting sporting ones. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, let's do some House, house, house keep it. House, house keep, to keep it. House yeah, to house. Keep it. What? Yeah, what? Yeah, housekeeping. <laughs> yeah, bad. Yeah, dab. Mini dab. <laughs> We're gonna run through it real quick. You know the drill, folks. Go check out all of our socials because you're missing out on all really funny shit and. We're Truth. on all the usuals. We're on TikToks, Instagrams, YouTubes. They're our three faves. So yeah, go check that out. Hundred percent. And then every week, Kate and I usually have a bonus episode because he can't get too much of us. I don't know that we will tonight, purely because it's going to depend on time because we have to. We've got to go. Yeah, we do have to go. So we'll wait and see. But usually we do, folks. And there's there's like tens of bonus episodes that you're missing out on by not being a tens. Patreon. There are dozens, <laughs> literally dozens of them. Yeah. So go <laughs> find us on Patreon and sign up for like five bucks a month yeah, and you get access to it all. And it's shitting.bricks.podcast again. Broop. Amazing. Uh, not going to do Boo Pod Network because you all know we're part of the Boo Pod Network. Forget about that yep. one. Um, and we're going to be coming into October. We'll do some spoopy stuff, which would be cute. Yeah, we do our Halloween special. So stick around for that. and Stick um, around. Yeah, Kate and I are counting down. We're what up to episode we're almost up to a hundred episodes. So yep. you're getting some flavors of what we've done in the past. And I think maybe tonight we'll wait and see if Kate wants to share with us. But also 
once we hit the 100 episodes, Kate and I are going to shift things around a little bit. So there's some new exciting things on the way, folks. Uh, so definitely want to stick around for that. Otherwise, absolutely. that is the end of housekeeping. Housekeeping, house, housekeeping, yeah. That's in a record, Kate. So I know, amazing. We've nailed it. But we're on it. We're on it tonight. And I'm going to tell you, Dom. What? I'm feeling a bit gassy. Oh, okay. Well, that's okay. <laughs> so tonight's episode is, I would like for it to be entitled Feeling Gassy. Feeling gassy? Done. I'll do that for you. Now, this came about because uh, (laughs) I was trying to think about, absolutely, I was trying to think about an episode um, for everyone uh, to listen to, and it's my turn. So why don't I take you down the path of one of my fears, which I haven't actually discussed, Um, but I thought about it and I thought, oh, Nelly, well, that sounds like a story to me. Let's um, tie it in. And as usual, I'll have some little mini stories for you and then a bigger story and then I'll tell you some personal tales. We'll have a laugh. We'll have a giggle. We'll have a chuckle. You'll go on your way. We'll go and watch the Tillies win. So the fear that I'm going to talk to you about tonight is from the Greek word ekrixi. Yes. Ekrixiphobia, which is the fear of... Dom, do you want to take a guess? Drinks? Greeks. Oh, Greeks. <laughs> Greeksophobia? <laughs> no, it is not. Uh, Ekrixiphobia is the fear of explosions. Oh, that's totally fair. It is. It is, I think. Now, it's the fear is most commonly triggered by seeing explosions, and it can be as bad as seeing explosions on the news, um, on telly, in, in movies and things like that, if you've got some some traumas that triggers you. Uh, but that is, that's the phobia I'm going to talk a little bit about today. So I... if uh, exrixiphobia uh, is something that you suffer from, I'm going to be talking about uh, explosions tonight a little bit. Interesting. Yeah, this came about because one of my um, irrational fears is I I love barbecuing. I will not turn the gas bottle on. I will not stand close to a barbecue when I light it. I assume that all residential gas cylinders um, are destined to explode, uh, that they're very temperamental, that they're very sensitive, and it is something that I'm frightened of. So I tell you what I carry around with me at every barbecue, and that is a, a little blanket? container, yeah, fire blanket, <laughs> but also a little container of soapy water because we all know that way to test your gas lines is to go ahead and put on some soapy water, and then if you turn it on and there's bubbles, turn that mother off. Um but, yeah, so I do that all the time, unnecessarily, because I haven't touched the gas bottle since last I used it, but you never know. So <laughs> I'm all over it. Now, what are the it's questions? The silent killer, folks. There's <laughs> gas bottles is. going off all the time Everywhere. And they're not talking about it. And they're not talking about it. That's what I'm saying. I'm going to bust this wide open. Now, one of the things that I did look at is um, uh, chucking a question into Juge, which we like to do. What? will you do if a domestic gas cylinder bursts? Now, this website has given some great advice. (laughs) If a domestic gas cylinder bursts, then you should run away because if a domestic gas cylinder bursts, then flying shrapnel would damage your body. Yes. Fair. Fair. The best method, we always like to teach on this pod, the best method of putting out a flammable gas fire is by using carbon dioxide extinguishers. So carry one of those with you, take your little tube of uh, soapy water, and you'll be safe. Now, good news, everybody. Gas bottles should not explode in the sun. 
So that's one of the other things is if I leave a gas bottle in the sunshine, is it going to explode? Now, although for safety reasons, we do always recommend, and by we, I do not mean Dominic and I, so please don't <laughs> listen to our advice. Uh, we recommend storing cylinders out of direct sunlight. You should avoid storing your gas bottles inside cars or near machinery and fires where temperatures can get artificially high and pose a risk of explosion. That's, I Makes think sense. that's a pretty safe, all stuff pretty, pretty common sensey so far, yeah. okay? Yeah, that's exactly right. But there are warning labels on things for reasons, and that is reasons that people don't take common sense seriously and, uh, yeah, yeah, follow those safety safety things. Darwin Awards. So, have you ever heard of Darwin Awards, Kate? I have. I yeah, have. that's what Natural I think selection. of these things. It's yes, just, exactly. <laughs> you could do a whole podcast just on Darwin Awards. Natural selection, Darwin Awards, the Darwin Awards. There probably is a podcast called the Darwin Awards. All right, so to start us off, to kick us off this episode, uh, not only are we learning, not only are we getting safety tips and advice, but here, folks, are 10 of the most powerful explosions the world has ever seen. Ooh. Some of these we've touched on. Um, but I'm going to just go over them again. Let's just, let's do a bit of a, a top 10. Number I one. Like a bit of touching. Yes. Who doesn't? Mm, glory. Um, now, number one, we have the Halifax explosion. In 1917, a French cargo ship fully loaded with explosives for World War I accidentally collided with a Belgian vessel in the harbour of Halifax in Canada. It exploded with more force than any man-made explosion ever before it, equivalent to three kilotons of TNT. That's, yeah, I can't comprehend that, but now that that is a fart, that's that's some gas. The blast sent a white plume billowing 20,000 feet above the city. Now think that you level out in an aeroplane at 36,000 feet. So we're only 16,000 feet away from where you level out as an aeroplane. Now it shot up into the uh, the sky and it provoked a tsunami that washed up as 60 feet high. Ooh. So, yeah, for nearly two kilometres surrounding the blast centre, there, to- there was total devastation It rough- and roughly 2,000 people were killed and 9,000 injured and it remains the world's largest artificial accidental explosion. That just freaks me out a little bit. And I'm sure there's been talk of it before, but does that mean we could do, cause an artificial tsunami at any point in any direction? No, no doubt we could wow. if we really put our minds to it. Yes. And I feel as though too, you would be a bit annoyed because if you were just going down the grocery and then all of a sudden you were dead, you'd be a bit upset <laughs> just based on something that someone else <laughs> They're like, whoopsie, we accidentally bumped into another shippy and now we've killed 2,000 people. <laughs> I know. Like, so that's a, yeah. that's a, that's a pretty big nautical mistake. And you, it is. ships don't go fast at each other, like, you know, yeah. 20 minutes just almost running into each other, going, oh shit, this isn't going to be good. Whoops, whoops. <laughs> move, move out of the, move, <laughs> get out of the way. Yeah, no good. No good. So, yeah, it would be – that's also one of my fears is just like if you were just standing there and then you saw like a – like this blast coming towards you, you're like, oh, shit, and then oh, dead. Wow. <laughs> oh, oh, well. <laughs> we had a good run. What are you going to do? Oh, bloody hell, the French and the Belgians. <laughs> um, so that's number one on our list. Number two, which also happens to slide into our pop culture reference of the week, 
is the Deep Water Horizon. Mm. Now, film of the same name, Marky Mark, um, does star in that. What a dream boat. The Deepwater Horizon is the largest marine oil spill in history, began on April 20, 2010, when an explosion rocked the Deepwater Horizon oil rig. Over the following months, tens of thousands of barrels of oil would leak into the Gulf of Mexico every day as BP engineers struggled to contain the leak. By the time the well was sealed in September of 2010, so that's April, May, June, July, August, it was five months, five months that it took, an estimated 4.9 million barrels of oil had leaked into the Gulf and immense damage had been done to the Gulf's economy and ecology. 11 workers were missing and 17 injured in an explosion at the fireboats responding uh, to the conflagration Mm. Don't know what that word means, but I assume conflagrate is just like it's Boom. incineration. It's burning Aha. up. It's boom. perfect. That uh, so they <laughs> were uh, responding to that. Um, yeah, you know, on April twenty first. So there was yeah, um, there was those bloody um, people missing and from Have another you seen explosion. That movie, Kate. I've seen bits of it. I haven't seen the whole thing. I'm sure it's been one of those ones that's been on telly, and I've like, yeah. oh, cool, and then, but I haven't sat all the way through, so I must do that. It's really. I find it really interesting. I don't know how mm-hmm. accurate it is. Um, it's Hollywood, yeah. but it's pretty impressive. It's a good film. It's a good, okay. as in, don't think about the reality of it, but I think you yeah, would exactly. enjoy it. But in terms of, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Well, I will put it on my list, as should our listeners. After Matilda wins tonight. Uh, absolutely. After the tills. Okay, number three is the Tianjin explosion in China. In August 2015, at China's Tianjin port, a series of explosions shook China, let alone the world, as the scientists claim it to be the second more powerful explosion involving the detonation of about 800 tonnes of ammonium nitrate based on crater size and lethality. Lethality? Lethality? Yeah, lethality radius. Okay, so it's the second most in terms of that, how lethal it was and how epic the first two explosions occurred within 30 seconds of each other at the facility which is low code late low yeah low yep. code it's low <laughs> code that. um it is low code in the binhai new area of tianjin in china the second explosion was far larger and involved the detonation of about 800 tons of that ammonium nitrate fires caused by the initial explosions continued to burn uncontrolled throughout the weekend resulting in eight additional explosions on august 15th The cause of the explosions was not immediately known, but an investigation concluded in February 2016 said that an overheated container of dry nitrocellulose was the cause of the initial explosion. The official casualty report was 173 deaths, eight missing and 798 non-fatal injuries. Of the 173 fatalities, 104 of those were firefighters. Holy moly! I've never heard of this one. There you go. Am I bringing you new, new you? info? Yeah, and I'm watching wow. footage of it at the moment, and it's <gasps> fucked up. Whoa! We, we'll put some on our sosies. Jeepers! Okay. Jeepers right. creepers! There you go. So that is Tianjin, number four on our list. Uh, now, folks, I've not put numbers next to this, so I might just start making making them up, but I'm pretty sure we're up to number four. Number four is the Bhopal disaster from India. 
Mm. Yes, this is familiar. Yeah. The single worst industrial accident in history. Mm. Okay. Occurred on December 3, 1984, when some 45 tons of the dangerous gas methyl isocyanate escaped from the Union Carbide plant in Bhopal, India. The gas drifted over the densely populated neighborhoods around the plant, killing thousands of people immediately and creating a panic as tens of thousands of others attempted to flee Bhopal. The final death toll was estimated to be between 15,000 and 20,000, while a half a million survivors suffered respiratory problems, eye irritation or blindness. So that is quite epic in terms of its effect and its sheer destruction and pain and suffering that it caused people. I'm trying to remember which episode we did the Bhopal one. We did. Yes, exactly right. I had to add it in the list, even though we have touched on that before. I can't remember which one it was. But anyway, it was, you know, we've just done so many episodes, folks. But well, that's if you're the interested thing. to learn We're more about that in. one. You can yeah. listen to a full, epi- a full epi episode. Yep. Yeah. Cool bananas. Maybe it was Pestify. I think it might have been Pestify. Mm, it could have been yeah. Pestify. Yeah. All right. The next on my list, number 19, is Three Mile Island in the USA. Ooh, good one. The worst nuclear accident in U.S. history began at 4 a.m. on March 28th, 1979, when an automatically operated valve in Three Mile Island's Unit 2 reactor mistakenly closed, shutting off water supply to the main feed water system. Uh, Was this part of Pestify as well? Mm -mm, mm -mm. I just, this sounds familiar, but uh, the system that transfers, so the the main feed water system is the system that transfers heat from the water um, and that's actually circulating the reactor core. So it's a bad mistake. This caused the reactor core to shut down automatically, but a series of equipment and instrument malfunctions, human errors in operating procedures and mistaken decisions in the ensuing hours led to a serious loss of water coolant from the reactor core. As a result, the core was partially exposed and the zirconium cladding of its fuel reacted with the surrounding superheated steam to form a large accumulation of hydrogen gas, Mm. some of which escaped from the core into the containment vessel of the reactor building. Very little of this and other radioactive gases actually escaped into the atmosphere, although the accident had few apparent health consequences for the surrounding population, uh, it did have widespread and profound effects on the American nuclear power industry. Because they're like, guys, you can't really, it's it's really tricky when you're making mistakes around a nuclear reactor. Like we've got to do it. We have to have an inquest. I'm, t- I'm terribly sorry to put you under this pressure, but we've got to. Yeah. I've, I've, I've wanted to do an episode on this particular one because it's, it's kind of like Chernobyl in its... The yeah. level of detail and um, yeah, the steps just, leading it's, it's up to and in, the, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a really interesting story. Yeah, um, often gets forgotten. So yeah, yeah. there you go. We little touch on that. Uh, number six is the Texas City disaster in USA. Do you know of this one, Dom? You're in Texas, not during this time. You weren't there in 1947, were you? <laughs> I may be passing <laughs> through. Passing through. On fire, a fire, not on fire, a fire on board. Uh, The cargo ship SS Grand Camp docked at Texas City in 1947 and it detonated 2,300 tonnes of ammonium nitrate. 
a compound that's that's used in fertilizers and high explosives. So it's used yeah. in TNT and and that sort of stuff. The explosion blew two planes out of the sky and Ooh. triggered a chain reaction that detonated nearby refineries as well as a neighboring cargo ship carrying another thousand tons of ammonium nitrate. That's bad. That's, that's poor, poor organization. The disaster killed roughly 600 people and injured around 3,500 and is generally considered one of the worst industrial accidents in U.S. history. Yeah, not good. Like blowing planes, planes out, out of the, of the sky. sky. <laughs> yeah, <just laughs> Sorry, not a good day. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Oh God, I made a mistake. Uh, again, fires like they were just yeah, and that was 1947. So yes, you know, um, safety and and health and all that sort of stuff has adjusted touch, but that's quite significant. The next one, which Dom did mention, and you can't have a list of ten without it, is in fact Chernobyl in the Soviet oh. Union. If you're not aware of this one, uh, it's the, you know, one of the most infamous explosions uh, and it changed the landscape of nuclear power plants for good. In 1986, a nuclear reactor exploded at Chernobyl in Ukraine, then part of the Soviet Union. It was the worst nuclear accident in history. The blast which blew the 2,000 tonne lid off the reactor, boop, sent out 400, <laughs> to the, imagine the sound that it made. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's gone. Oh, it shit, it's out, gone. <laughs> oh, no, not the roof again. Uh, it sent out 400 times more radioactive fallout than the Hiroshima bomb, contaminating more than 77,000 square miles or 200,000 square kilometres. That's a shitload of tennis courts for anyone playing at home. <laughs> Of Europe. Now, roughly 600,000 people were exposed to high doses of radiation and more than 350,000 people had to be evacuated from contaminated areas. Bad. Yeah, not good sign. I think like, not yeah. great. And if you, honestly, and, if, you're, if you're up to this episode, folks, and you've never heard of Chernobyl. Chernobyl? Or I think we're... <laughs> okay. Get it together. Get it All together. Right. Here we go. Trinity Blast, USA. This is the next on our list. The first atom bomb. Now, this is quite sort of contemporary for recent cinema, but the first atom bomb in history dubbed The Gadget was detonated at the Trinity site near Alamogordo, New Mexico, in 1945, exploding with a force of roughly 20 kilotons of TNT. It's big. Scientist J. Robert Oppenheimer later said that while he watched the test, he thought of a line from the Hindu scripture. It was, I become death, the destroyer of words, worlds. Nuclear weapons later ended World War II and ushered in decades of fear of nuclear annihilation. Scientists recently found that civilians in New Mexico may have been exposed to thousands of times the recommended level of public radiation. It's so interesting. And if you haven't watched Oppenheimer, go do it. But I haven't seen it yet. It's so complex, a long story. They miss so much. There's yeah. just, it's such a shame. Yeah. But, uh, anyway. but that's the Trinity Blast. Yeah, so interesting. Yeah, I need to set aside some time for my um, cinema. I've not seen Barbie either. So I really need to go and do that. The Barbie-Oppenheimer duo. I haven't seen Barbie yet. I'll, okay. I, I don't feel it's necessarily a cinema experience. It's like sure, a, you I can, can watch, watch it at home, hungover, yeah, yeah, yeah. and whatever. Oppenheimer. Yep, see it at a cinema. Cinema. Okay. Done. Uh, the next on our list, I believe, is number nine. Yep, is Monaga in USA? In the USA, 
Now, this was a mining disaster, Dom. And this was um, one, it's mine. This was one of the worst mining disasters in US history. And it occurred on December 6th, 1907, when an explosion in a coal mine in Monaga, West Virginia, collapsed the mine entrance and its ventilation system during one of the busiest parts of the workday. Never happens on night shift, always in the busiest time. More than 350 miners, many of them young boys, were killed in the explosion or suffocated suffocated as poisonous gas filled the tunnels. Shit way to go. I'm not into that. I mean, I'm not going to be a miner anyway. I'm not going to go down there. Don't ask me. Please don't. (laughs) Please stop sending me requests. I'm not going to do it. (laughs) Not going caving. I love caving. I know you you do. I love it. I know. I have to say... I think I would, you know, you've asked me these questions before. Would you, would you rather, and we should do that, actually. We should do that. We should do a whole episode. A whole would you rather thing. And I would say getting caught in a cave. And remember you did, I think you told that story or we did the story. Yes, the the guy that went upside upside down. down. Yeah. That is probably worse. That I'd prefer to be burned alive. Same. I'd be like, just shoot me up my asshole. If I'm upside, <laughs> if I'm upside down in a goddamn tunnel and I'm stuck here, shoot me in the asshole and pray to God it travels <laughs> through my guts all the way to my brain because I cannot be here. I can't. How, in fact, did I get here? I've told you many times I don't want to go caving. I don't want to be here. Now I'm upside down and I'm trapped. Please, for the love of God, someone shoot, shoot my me. asshole. <laughs> shoot me. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. The number ten, the number ten on our list. I'm not going to pronounce this correctly. Fair warning. Uh, the courierre in France. Ooh. Does that did that sound sort of French or more Sounds Italian? Sexy. I'm here for okay. it. Okay. Done. One of Europe's worst mining disasters. So again, in the mines, but we're in Europe now. It occurred on March 10 in 1906. So, again, safety procedures and stuff may be a little bit lax. Now, almost 1,100 people were killed and hundreds were injured when an explosion rocked the Courier, Courier, Courier mine near the Calais Hills in northern France. Although smoke and toxic gas were reported at the mine site in the days prior to the explosion, work continued. Come on, guys. Don't. Smoke and toxic gas, they're there. I know. Uh, Now, mine owners ended search efforts three days after the explosion, declaring the remaining men dead. This undue haste led to intense criticism in light of the fact that survivors continued to emerge from the mine as many as 20 days after the explosion. I love how just normalised this is. Oh, yeah, the cave's fucked again. They're gone. They're gone. Yeah, so three days they stopped looking. They were like, "We've nah, we've found everyone. We can't possibly. 20 days later, some other guy's like, Oi, you forgot about me. Where I was down moving? in the mine. <laughs> guys, <laughs> I'm thirsty. Uh, okay, so that is our little quick top ten list of our uh, explosions. And okay. uh, they're pretty pretty intense. But yeah. um, Started with a bang, Kate. Oh, there it is. Yeah. Now, Dom, if we're talking about explosions, can you think of any? Talk to me in some history because I've got one for you. It's one of the most famous. It's not one in that top ten list. It's not an industrial one per se. Talk to me about explosions. I'll give you a hint. 1937, (laughs) New Jersey. 
New Jersey. New Jersey. Oh, okay. Oh, mm. I was going to go Fukushima. I was going to go to Nagasaki and okay. and things like that. I was even going to go to the one that happened recently in where was it? And there's footage of the best footage you've ever seen. It was not Turkey. It was somewhere sort of Central Asia and it was um there's all the photo the videos of it. It's in like a major yeah. city and it just like took over the whole city. Oh. Okay. Um, I mean, I don't know of that one, but again, not surprising that I don't know something. Um, New Jersey. A, New a Jersey. Big, a big explosion in New Jersey. Uh-huh. Now think, uh, not, don't think on the ground. In the sky before, before World War Two. Nah, I don't know. I'm going to go through the Hindenburg disaster for you. Ah. <laughs> Okay, good one. Now, the Hindenburg disaster, folks, big blimp, it went kaboom. Let me tell you, I mean, I'm going to give you a bit more detail than that. but 30-minute episode, love it. (laughs) we got to watch the Tillies. Tillies are winning. It was a blimp, it blew up. Okay, see you guys next week. (laughs) (laughs) Let me give you a little background. Now, I don't know a lot about the Hindenburg disaster aside from, you know, a couple of little quick facts and things that I could probably bring up at a trivia night. But aside from that, I've learned a bit about this myself. So I'm hoping anyone who's listening will also learn a little bit about it. The Hindenburg disaster at Lakehurst, New Jersey on May 6th, 1937, brought an end to the age of the rigid airship. I don't think it brought an end to it. I'm pretty sure I saw one of those last weekend, but okay. (laughs) The disaster killed 35 persons on the airship and one member of the ground crew, but miraculously 62 of the 97 passengers and crew survived. No way. That That is impressive, right? That's... Actually, if I try to remember the footage of it coming, yeah, coming down. Because there's footage, there's, there's, yeah, footage, photographs. It's amazing. You can watch it all online. It's quite astounding. I imagine like the, the people holding device mm-hmm. <laughs> hit the ground before it exploded. So they the may... people, the people carriage, <laughs> the people carriage, <laughs> the undercarriage of the blimp. Where the yeah. people were. Yeah, it does. Now, um, after more than 30 years of passenger travel on commercial Zeppelins, so these are Zeppelins, this um, thing. What a word, Zeppelin. I know. I love it. Um, now, in which tens of thousands of passengers threw over millions of miles on more than 2,000 flights without a single injury, the era of passenger airship came to an end in a few fiery minutes. Hindenburg was the last passenger aircraft of the world's first airline. Her chief steward was the first flight attendant in history and she was the fastest way across the, not the flight attendant, she wasn't the fastest (laughs) way. I was waiting. (laughs) You were going to jump in with that. Jeez, good for her. She was loose. Giddy up. (laughs) Now, it was the fastest way, the Hindenburg was the fastest way to cross the Atlantic in her day. Hindenburg passengers could travel from Europe to North and South America in half the time of the fastest ocean liner, and they travelled in luxurious interiors. Now, just think the most 70s dining room. (laughs) Just think red pleather 
chairs with like gingham tablecloths. That's the luxury from which they travelled. But again, this is, you know, this is the the early 1900s. So fair enough. Uh, Now they would never again be matched in the air. They enjoyed meals in an elegant dining room, listened to an aluminium piano in a modern lounge, and they slept in comfortable cabins. They could even have a cigarette or a cigar in the smoking room. (laughs) (laughs) Now, all of that, that luxury, the smoking room, the aluminium piano, that all came to an end in 32 seconds because above the elegant passenger quarters were 7 million cubic feet of hydrogen gas. I just don't know how in... I I hear you. (laughs) I hear you. But we said the same thing when we talked about the Titanic, when they're designing the ship and there's not enough lifeboats for half the passengers. Like there's not enough lifeboats for a third of the passengers. You just think how. How, how? I don't know. If someone put me on a boat today and said, guess what? There aren't enough lifeboats. I'd be like, Titanic or no Titanic? Yeah. I'd be like, uh, mm, no, nah, not going to happen. Off. Thank yeah. you. I'm getting off this gastro boat and I'm going to a hotel. Thanks so much for the offer. Um, <laughs> the cause of the Hindenburg disaster, um, here's its brief, here's its brief little what happened. Okay. It got Almost, wet and it drowned. It got, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there weren't enough lifeboats on the Hindenburg, so they were all fucked. Almost 80 years of research and scientific tests support the same conclusion. Okay, so they've been really they've been really hanging on to this one. They're just like, nah, I think I know we've done 9,842 other tests for 70 years. Let's do another one. Uh, now, they came to the same conclusion, by the, um, which was reached by the original German and American accident investigators in 1937. It seems clear that the Hindenburg disaster was caused by an electrostatic discharge, so a spark, that ignited leaking hydrogen. That does sound like a bad combo. Yeah, I'm not a scientist or a chemist or a physicist, but I don't know if any of those people know anything about sparks and hydrogen. It doesn't sound good. Now, the spark was most likely caused by a difference in electric potential between the airship and the surrounding air. So there's really nothing that they were able to do about it because it was all electromagnetic forces and stuff. The airship was approximately 60 metres above the airfield in an electrically charged atmosphere, but the ship's metal framework was grounded by its landing line. The difference in electric potential, I really like the phrase electric potential, Mm. it likely caused a spark to jump from the ship's fabric covering, um, which had the ability to hold a charge, to the ship's framework, which was grounded through the landing line. Now, a somewhat less likely but still plausible theory uh, attributes the spark to coronal discharge, uh, more commonly known as St. Elmo's fire. I don't know what that sentence means. Do you? (laughs) (laughs) This is straight from the internet. Uh, You keep reading and I will look up. Thank you. I do like the song St. Elmo's Fire, which was from the title of the film, um, which was also very good. See St. Elmo's Fire. It's great. The cause of the hydrogen leak is more of a mystery, but we know the ship experienced a significant leakage of hydrogen before the disaster. No evidence of sabotage was ever found and no convincing theory of sabotage has ever been advanced. So they're like, yeah, we looked into that, but nah. 
One thing is clear. The disaster had nothing to do with the Zeppelin's fabric. Uh, they, you know, they thought it's highly flammable. Um, mm-hmm. So it's got to be the fabric. Like, isn't the fabric just setting on fire? It wasn't. It was not flammable. Um, that was a theory that was floated and that was like a, a myth that was busted. Uh, the Hindenburg was just one of many hydrogen airships destroyed by fire because of their flammable lifting gas. <laughs> and suggestion, <laughs> suggestions about the alleged flammability of the ship's outer covering have been repeatedly debunked. Repeatedly, I say. Mm. The simple truth is that the Hindenburg was de- destroyed in 32 seconds because it was inflated with hydrogen. That's yeah. it. And it was, this yeah. makes sense. After reading quickly, St. Elmo's fire occurs when the atmosphere becomes charged and an electrical potential strong enough to cause a discharge or plasma is created between an object and the air around it. Okay. So it sounds exactly like what you're describing here. Yes. It was just something in the air and something else with the flammable thing. Yeah. Okay. Um, I just love electric potential. I do. I love. It's a great I phrase. Love all of this is hot. <laughs> I know, okay. It's an almost fire. It's all. Just, yeah. Right under the river. Underneath the river. Welcome to the waiting room chair. Go have a chat. <laughs> I don't even know who sang it. I do know some of the words. Um, St. Elmo's Fire, that part. I know that bit. (laughs) Okay, the last flight of the Hindenburg. Hindenburg began its last flight on May 3, 1937, carrying 36 passengers, 61 officers, crew members and trainees, and it was the airship's 63rd flight. The ship left the Frankfurt airfield at 7.16 p.m. and it flew over Cologne and then crossed the Netherlands before following the English Channel past the chalky cliffs of Beachy Head in southern England and then heading out over the Atlantic shortly after 2 a.m. the next day. Hindenburg followed a northern track across the ocean. You can look at the chart if you're so inclined. Um, It looks like them going from London across the Atlantic, just for those playing at home. (laughs) (laughs) Makes sense. Passing the southern tip of Greenland and crossing into the North American coast at Newfoundland. Headwinds delayed the airship's passage across the Atlantic and the Lakehurst arrival, which had been scheduled for 6am on May 6th, was postponed until 6pm. So they were 12 hours late. So how about that? Shove your little, this is the quickest way to get anywhere, 12 hour delay. Goodness me. The winds were going the wrong way. It's the winds, Marge, the winds are here. By noon on May 6th, the ship had reached Boston. And by 3 p.m., Hindenburg was over the skyscrapers of Manhattan in New York City. There's a photograph. It's quite impressive. Mm. Um, The ship flew south from New York and arrived at the Naval Air Station at Lakehurst, New Jersey, at around 4.15 p.m. But the poor weather conditions at the field concerned the Hindenburg's commander, Captain Max Proust, and also Lakehurst's commanding officer, Charles Rosendahl, who sent a message to the ship recommending a delay in landing until conditions improved. Captain Proust departed the Lakehurst area and took his ship over the beaches and the coast of New Jersey to wait out the storm. 
By 6pm, the conditions had improved. And at 6.12, Rosendahl sent Proust a message relaying the temperature pressure, the visibility and winds, which Rosendahl considered suitable for landing. At 6.22, Rosendahl radioed Proust, recommending landing now. And at 7.08, Rosendahl sent a message to the ship, strongly recommending the earliest possible landing. It's so interesting. It's like, you know, there's electricity in the sky, folks. Um, What? (laughs) I just find it so fascinating to be like, let's go up into the sky where there's electricity and electrical charges and hope to fuck we don't get zapped. Zapped? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And while we're at it, to get up there, I'm a huge fan of a giant hydrogen balloon. Anyone else? Shall we just just do that? Let's just pop ourselves in a hydrogen balloon and go up into the electromagnetic force of Earth. It's got good electric potential. That's the good thing. And the casual (laughs) swat stickers on the side are just Uh, also a bit like. (laughs) That was something I hadn't hadn't mentioned yet. Decorated to a T. No, that's fine. Um, Yeah, decorated in a, uh, yeah, quite an interesting way. Hindenburg uh, approached the field at Lakehurst. Now, this is their landing approach. So Rosendahl's like, I strongly recommend an immediate landing. Please come home. (laughs) Um, Please land. Pretty please. Pretty please with sugar on top. Hindenburg approached the field at Lakehurst from the southwest shortly after 7 p.m. at an altitude of approximately 600 feet. Not particularly high up in the air. Now, since the wind was from the east... Winds in the east. <laughs> oh, here we go. <laughs> Miss blowing in like something is brewing about to begin. <laughs> Anyone seen Mary Poppins? Put your hand up. Very good. Um, okay. Now, since the winds from the east, after passing over the field to observe conditions on the grease on the ground, Captain Proust initiated a wide left turn to fly a descending oval pattern around the north and west of the field to line up for landing into the wind to the east. Mm -hmm. While Captain Proust, who was directing the ship's heading and engine power settings, brought Hindenburg around the field, first officer Albert Sampt, it just says Sampt, S-A-M-M-T, Sampt, Sampt, Sampt. Uh, now, um, Albert, Albie, he was responsible for the ship's trim and altitude and he was assisted by watch officer Walter Ziegler at the gas board uh, and then the second officer, Hein- Heinrich Bauer, at the ballast board. Okay, um, that was a lot in a bracket. One moment, please. I'm going back. Brought Hindenburg around the field. First officer, Albert Zamet. Uh, valved 15 seconds of hydrogen along the length of the ship to reduce the Hindenburg's buoyancy in preparation for landing. As Proust continued to the slow left turn of the oval landing pattern, reducing and then reversing the power from the engines. <laughs> just imagine going beep boop, just slowly coming down. Now, um, after Proust was doing all of that, pressing all the buttons and reversing and moving things, Samp noticed that the ship was heavy in the tail and valved hydrogen from cells 11 to 16 in the bow for a total of 30 seconds. Now, this was to reduce the buoyancy of the bow and keep the ship level trim. When this failed to level the ship, Samp ordered three drops of water ballast, totaling 1,100 kilograms, from ring 77. (laughs) 
Ring-a-ding-ding. Uh, now, Ring 77 is in the tail. Yes, it is. Uh, and then he valved an additional five seconds of hydrogen from the forward gas cells. When even these measured co- measures could not keep the ship level trim, six crewmen were ordered to go forward and add their weight to the bow. So, like, guys, we've pressed all the buttons. Nothing's working. Jimmy, Billy, Oscar, Ralph, Tim, Get back and from your smoko. Get off the piano. <laughs> Quit tinkling those aluminium ivories and run to the bow of the ship, please. Level this mother out. <laughs> drop, the, r- drop the ropes. I know. And they're like, they're on an angle. <laughs> yeah. The ass end is down. Ooh. Ooh, they've got to run up a, a steep slope. Now, Sam, he's just working his little took us off here to keep the ship trim, aren't we all? Um, the wind shifted direction from the east to the southwest. Uh-oh. What a piece of shit. I hate wind. We've been over this. Wind is my least favourite element. And now Captain Pruce, he now needed to land into the wind on a southwesterly heading, so he's got to adjust his oval. Now, rather than easterly heading um, that was originally planned, he's now trying to, like, figure it out. So Hindenburg was now close to the landing area. However, it didn't have a lot of room to manoeuvre before reaching the mooring mast. Anxious to land quickly before weather conditions could deteriorate, Captain Proust decided to execute a tight S-turn to change the direction of the ship's landing. Proust ordered, I'm just imagining him making these last-minute decisions and being like, quick, guys, run to the other side. (laughs) If you watch any footage of the Hindenburg, nothing's done tight and nothing's done sharply. (laughs) You need to put a... You need to put a week's notice for anything. It is is loose and it is blunt. There is no tight and sharp in this whole procedure. Now, whilst Captain Bruce is, uh, you know, trying to um, do this tight turn, he ordered um, a turn to port to swing out and then a sharp turn right to starboard to line up for the landing into the wind. Now, some experts, classic, hindsight's twenty twenty, folks, some experts would later theorise that this sharp turn overstressed the ship, causing a bracing wire to snap and slash a gas cell, allowing hydrogen to mix with air to form a highly explosive combination. So that's one of the, the theories. After the S-turn to change the direction of landing, Proust continued his approach to the mooring mast, adjusting power from two forward and two rear engines. And at 7.21 with the ship about 180 feet from the ground, the forward landing ropes were dropped. A few minutes after the landing lines were dropped, R.H. Ward, in charge of the port bow landing party, noticed that what he described... Sorry, I make myself laugh. That's all, that's all that matters. I make my own fun. Now, he noticed what he described as a wave-like fluttering of the outer cover on the port side between frames 62 and 77, which contained gas cell number five. He testified at the Commerce Department inquiry that it appeared to him as if gas were pushing against the cover, having escaped from its gas cell. Ground crew member R.W. Antrim, who was at the top of the mooring mast, also testified that he saw that the covering behind the rear port engine was fluttering. That's yeah, it's interesting me, because – Oh, that's all right. I was going to say, <laughs> if you look at the footage, yeah. there's like 100, 150 people on the ground. It takes a just, lot of people, folks, just to get this one thing down. Yeah, <laughs> so there's plenty of witnesses. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, but then when you're watching the footage as well, like you can see the, the fluttering that they're talking about. Like you're mm. just like, is it just super windy? Like is that normal? Now at 7.25, the first visible external flames appeared. That would be a concern. I'd be like, oh, that's bad. Reports vary, but most witnesses, where there was a few of them, uh, they saw the first flames either at the top of the hull, just forward of the vertical fin, um, or between the rear port engine and the rear port fin, uh, where um, that was where the gas cell four and five were, were, and that's exactly where Ward and Antrim had seen that fluttering. So they're just like, yeah, it's... We reckon that had something to do with it. Um, now, Lakehurst Commander Rosendahl described a mushroom-shaped flower of flame bursting into bloom in front of the upper fin. Ooh, Navy a Lieutenant. description. Right? A mushroom-shaped flower of flame bursting into bloom. Uh, Navy Lieutenant Benjamin May, the assistant mooring officer who was atop the mooring mast, he testified that an area just behind the rear port engine where Warden Antrim reported the fluttering seemed to collapse, after which he saw streaks of flame followed by a muffled explosion. Then the entire tail was engulfed by flame. Navy ground crew member William Bishop described seeing flames inside the ship a little above um, the aft rear port of the, the engine car. Now, several witnesses inside the ship also saw the beginning of the fire. Helmsman, Helmsman Helmet, Helmsman Helmet Lau. Now, he was stationed, (laughs) that's his name, he was stationed at the auxiliary control stand in the lower fin. Now, he heard a muffled detonation and looked up and saw from the starboard side um, the down inside the gas cell, there was a bright reflection on the front bulkhead of cell number four. So he's like, there's a reflection. This doesn't look good. Now, Lau, helmsman, helmet Lau, described the flames he saw at the cell four, uh, at cell four, at the inquiry. He said, the bright reflection in the cell was inside. (laughs) I'm really sorry, helmet. I saw it through the cell. It was the first red and yellow and there was smoke in it. The cell did not burst on the lower side. The cell suddenly disappeared by the heat. The fire proceeded further down. Then it got air. The flame became very bright. And the fire rose up to the side, more to the starboard side, as I remember seeing it. And I saw with the flame the aluminium parts, maybe aluminium piano, maybe aluminium parts. And there was fabric parts. They were thrown up. In the same moment, the forward cell and back cell of cell four also caught fire. At the time, parts of the girders, molten aluminium fabric started to tumble from the top. The only thing, only last, I mean, the whole thing only lasted a fraction of a second. The fire quickly spread and soon engulfed the tail of the ship. But the ship remained level for a few more seconds before the tail began to sink and the nose pointed upward toward the sky. With a blowtorch of flame erupting from the bow where 12 crew members were stationed, including six who were sent forward to keep the ship trim. Oh, bless those six blokes. Oh. Now, in the port and starboard promenades on the passenger decks where many of the passengers and some of the crew had gathered to watch the landing, the rapidly increasing angle of the ship caused passengers and crew to tumble against the walls, the furniture, and each other. Passenger Margaret Mather recalled being hurled 15 to 20 feet against the rear wall of the dining room and she was pinned against a bench by several other people. Horrendous. Hot. 
Finally, Dom. <laughs> Hindenburg. I'm just deciding whether or not I could do, yeah, you know. The fire spread quickly. I will do this part. We're all right. We're still good for time. I was just checking. Now, survival and death. Mm, okay. Yeah. <laughs> the fire spread so quickly, consuming the ship in less than a minute. The survival was largely a matter of where one happened to be located when the fire broke out. Passengers and crew members began jumping out the promenade windows to escape the burning ship and most of the passengers and all of the crew who were in the public rooms on a deck at the time of the fire did survive. Those who were deeper inside the ship uh, in the passenger cabins at the centre of the decks or the crew spaces along the keel generally died in the fire. (laughs) Generally, they'll die. Semi-dead. One passenger was in the dining room when the fire broke out. Now, he encouraged he was encouraged to jump by ship's photographer Carl Otto Clemens, who escaped through one of the windows and survived. Uh, now, one of these passengers instead, he left the dining room to find his wife, Emma, who had returned to their cabin for her coat, and both of them died in the fire. Leave your belongings. Yeah, sorry. L- you don't need a coat. Don't worry about it. Yeah, now, right. Mr. Leave the fur. Just leave it. Now, Mr. and Mrs. Herman Dona and their three children, Irene, Walter and Verna, were also in the dining room and they were watching the landing. But Mr. Dona left before the fire broke out. And Mrs. Dona and her two young sons jumped to safety, but Irene left the dining room in search of her father and they both died as a result of the crash. That's horrendous. Given the speed with which the Hindenburg burned, Survival for the crew was also largely a matter of luck. Um, There's a diagram that you can look at and it has like, you know, lots of where people were and everything like that. Um, Now, one of the, uh, you know, uh, electricians, um, Max Schultz, he was in a smoking room on B deck. Um, There was people on the starboard side. They were generally trapped in the wreck. Um, The men stationed at the bow who were exposed to the column of flame um, that rose through the ship. They had at least a chance. they were there was nine men closest to the front of ship at the time of the fire unfortunately they did perish as the ship settled to the ground less than 30 seconds after the first flames were observed those who had jumped from the burning craft scrambled to safety as did members of the ground crew who had been positioned on the field below Natural instinct caused those on the ground to run from the burning wreck as fast as they could, but Chief Petty Officer Frederick J. Tobin, a longtime airship veteran and an enlisted airship pilot who was in charge of the Navy landing party, he cried out to his sailors, Navy men, stand fast. Tobin had survived the crash of the USS Shenandoah and he was not about to abandon those in peril on an airship even even if it meant his own life. And his sailors agreed. Films of the disaster um, clearly show sailors turning and running back towards the burning ship to rescue survivors. Those films are a permanent tribute to the courage of the sailors at Lakehurst that day. The final toll of the Hindenburg disaster, they left Frankfurt with 97 souls on board. 62 survived the crash at Lakehurst, although many suffered serious injuries. 13 of the 36 passengers and 22 of the 61 crew died as a result of the crash, along with one member of the civilian landing party. And that, Dominic, is the Feeling gassy episode of Shit and Bricks for this week. Thank you for joining me. 
Catherine. That was fantastic. Thank you. It's just something a little bit different. You know, it's just like vibing. I'm scared of gas bottles. What? I just think it's 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 one of those stories that um, it's very niche and people don't necessarily go back to it or revisit it, but it's good yeah. to pause for a moment and go through the details of 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 it because yeah. it was like the story. It was the biggest thing. It yeah. Was, you know, natural disaster caught on film. Yeah, right. and it is, and you can watch it all still, and it's so impressive. Like it's so, um, yeah, it's it's crazy. I just think you know it speaks a lot to that we're in a time and a, an age in where there's photos and live of everything. If anything happens, of any disaster, you know, there's always at least one dash cam or one person with their fucking phone or someone yep. getting married in some place and they'll always have footage of it. But there was a time when all this shit happened and all we know about it is the recounting of it in stories and it's on paper, it's words. So this was like a first example of footage yeah. of a disaster. Really of a disaster. Quite, I just, yeah, I think it's really interesting. Yeah. Anyway. Well done, Kate. That was amazing. <laughs> Thank you very much. Now, mm-hmm. folks, uh, yeah, for this week, we're not going to do a um, Patreon because up the fucking tillies. Let's go, girls. Yeah. Let's go, girls. Da, 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 da. We're going to win. Let's go. I can feel it. Yeah. <gasps> so I've got to get in, I've got to go get trams and trains and buses and things because i got to oh get gosh. across town. Where are you headed? To a friend's place and mm-hmm. i got to buy some booze. and Do it. Maybe some dinner. My groceries were just delivered. For those oh. of you playing at home, I ordered my groceries before the start of this episode because I don't leave my house when I'm busy. And if someone's going to bring me something, well, I'll just pay them to do it. So I went ahead and did that and now they're sitting on my porch. So I'm going to go get them and uh, I'm going to cook up some burgers and my delightful, beautiful uh, friend Jessica is coming and we're going to watch and it's just going to be a time. Well, love Yay! you. Can't wait. Love you. Up the tills. See you all. Love you. That's a wrap. Big shout out to everyone for tuning in to Shit and Bricks. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review us. Plus, you can find extra little nuggets on our socials. Next week, we'll be back talking more shit, so do not forget to tune in. And remember to wipe, flush and wash your hands. Goodbye. Goodbye.